This podcast was recorded on May 9th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. We're here live at the Solve Conference, and I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a special guest. We have Nancy Davis, who is a founder and managing partner at, and also the chief investment officer at Quadratic Capital, which was founded back in 2013. Welcome, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Nancy, you were a little nervous when you came in the, the room today. We're, this is your first podcast ever. Luckily, not a lot of people listen to it, so you'll be good. So just <laughs> relax and uh, enjoy this. So... You started off your career at Alliance Bernstein? No, Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs. So tell us about coming out of school, going to Goldman. Uh, what did you first do at Goldman? Yes, I was a little unusual because I uh, was lucky to find my passion pretty early. So I actually started trading options in college. Okay. And I had a, I was a scholarship kid. I had a full-time job and I wanted to, you know, go have crab cakes in Georgetown with uh, my friends and uh, needed a job and uh, was really fortunate to start in the financial services industry. And I was doing a lot of transfer pricing back in the day, which was all about swapping revenue from one high tax country to another and started taking classes in derivatives and just fell in love with options. So... So I came to Goldman, Goldman to trade options. Yeah, right. So it wasn't tax evasion. You were actually trying to help uh, lower tax liabilities, right? Um, yeah, I yeah. was just an intern in college. <laughs> so I was just doing spreadsheets and coding. I don't think the IRS is onto our podcast yet, so it's okay. <laughs> but okay, so you started out kind of pricing derivatives. Well, first of all, what made you start uh, trading options as a college student? Was it that uh, you're looking to subsidize you know, those crab cake meals or... Uh, what what led you into actually just start trading options? I think I'm the ultimate value investor, and I just really liked looking for asymmetry and having risk-reward payoffs that were attractive. And I joke that some women really love to buy shoes, and I, I'd wear flip-flops every day of my life if I could get away with it, or no shoes. No shoes are the best shoes, and have no you know shoe or shopping kind of you know desires, but I love buying options. It's definitely my... Uh, you know, if I was a shopaholic, it would be for convexity. Right. All right. So an option shopper looking for convexity. Yeah. Right? So are there a lot of convexity sales out there in the market? You know, it varies, obviously, with the market environment. But now I think it's a incredibly attractive time to look for convexity, especially in asset classes outside of equities. All right. So our our viewers, our listeners, I should say, may not be familiar with that term convexity. You know, it's a little wonky. It's a little, it's like a math nerd term. Uh, <laughs> maybe you could help try to explain that to someone who uh, cringes at hearing that word. Yeah. So it's really talking about the asymmetry that you have with the option payoff. I think the one thing I would really highlight to the viewers is Options can be more risky than other types of derivatives. If I would say the derivatives are kind of a one brand of general, you know, it's kind of like fruit. And then within the fruit, you have different types of fruit like apples, pears, bananas. And so futures, forwards, swaps, all of those things are linear derivatives, meaning they move up and down with the same symmetry. So a dollar up is a dollar down. And then options are, I'd say, 
like pears or bananas, it's a different type of fruit because they have an asymmetric payoff. And that's what um, convexity, when you're short convexity, you can have a payoff like that. When you're long convexity, the payoff is, you know, you pay a premium and you get multiple times your premium potentially, or the most you can lose is that premium. So I'm a convexity buyer. Okay. You're not a convexity seller. No, no. I, I'm really anti-short uh, options, um, which is unusual in the world because I'd say, you know, 98% of the people who look at volatility and options sell vol. So where did you uh, really start to develop your ideas and your trading strategies? Was it um, when you were at Goldman and you saw uh, different things when you're out there doing some of these pricing? Um, was it in your next gig? And then um, how'd that lead you to kind of spin out to create your own firm? Yeah, I mean, I've been investing the same way my whole career, and it really started even before I got to Goldman. It was actually when I was trading my own money, and I think that's the best way, especially for the listeners, to learn how to invest is really do it on your own. You know, set aside a certain amount of capital that you're willing to, you know, basically spend in case you lose it and start doing it. Um, so when I came to Goldman, I had already been trading options for, you know, three and a half years. I also traded website domains, which was really? a little... <laughs> All right, let's get into that real yeah. quick. Uh, let's talk about the convexity payoff of website domain trading. Yeah, I, 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 what does that entail? I mean, well, some of our I listeners would, went around in the, in the dot com early, I was early making days. a bet on the dot nets and that was a bad trade because that didn't work out like the dot coms. And so I was buying lots of cheap, you know, econometrics.net and nerdy, you know, I think, I think in life, whatever you do, you have to embrace something you love. And for me, I love math. I'm, you know, I don't love podcasts. I don't love, you know, big conferences. <laughs> no offense <laughs> but, to you, but yeah. I'm very introverted. And so, but you have to, I think, you know, like everything else in life, you live off your successes and you have to compensate for your weaknesses and put yourself out there and do, you know, even these are uncomfortable and not my uh, desired way to spend uh, 9 a.m. on uh, salt in uh, Las Vegas, but it's uh, important to get the message out there. We really appreciate you taking the time <laughs> and getting out here. We're trying to pull you out a little bit of that introverted shell, but I think it's it's important for listeners to understand why we wanted to have you on here, too, because you know, you're a woman-founded firm. You've out there trading convexity. You know, what, what is the benefit of doing this for our listeners out there? What, what does quadratic capital bring to the table, uh, for, let's just say, you know, someone looking to, you know, um, diversify their portfolio? Is that, is that the best way to think about it? Is it looking for a better payoff? Um, is it just being a different way of approaching value? Maybe you could elaborate on kind of what your core foundation of your firm is and, and what you seek to deliver. Yeah, thanks, Jeffrey. I appreciate that. Those were all three things that we you articulated nicely that we definitely try to do at Quadratic. I founded the firm in 2013 because I really wanted to be an entrepreneur and I knew I was a good portfolio manager and really wanted to go down the entrepreneurial path. And I think it's uh, we definitely need more women to manage risk and be portfolio managers. And also, it's even a smaller subset of women who you know, take the plunge. And it's uh, a joke when you when you start a firm, you really have to change your mindset because you go from being paid to work to paying to work. Um, and, uh, I, you know, when I first started quadratic, it was definitely a expensive hobby initially and really following a dream and believing in our process and being different. So 
what we do at Quadratic is we structure portfolios such that we have asymmetric payoffs. We're not a vol firm. We don't trade vol as an asset class. That's really important to highlight. There are a lot of firms that do RV and those relative are value, right? relative value. Sorry, so, relative yeah, yeah. value. So they sell something in one place to buy something in another place. And I don't like those kind of trades because you can lose money on both sides. So we structure everything such that we stop loss when we allocate to the position. We actually trade delta on all of our options, meaning, meaning, meaning we have a directional view and we couple that with a volatility view. Like for instance, if you wanted to be short equities, you probably also want to be long vol. Okay. But you don't trade vol, you said. Well, we trade vol and direction at the same time. We trade them together. Okay, right. So we use options as a different way of structuring our portfolios. And it's interesting because in most investor portfolios, they create a portfolio, whether it's cash instruments or Delta One derivatives, and then they risk manage that portfolio by implementing stop losses, right? You hear that all the time, like it's, oh, we have really tight stop losses. It's great for our investors, but just just take a step back and think about what does a stop loss mean? Like, what does that mean for your money? What does that mean for your money? It means first the manager loses your money and only after they lose that money do they start to manage risk. And to me, that's just backwards. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I think you should manage the risk when you set the position and then you should profit take when you have that convexity payoff and that asymmetry to monetize the P&L. So I think we just take it from, you know, completely inside out, different approach. And I think, you know, if you look at investors' portfolios, many of them are the same thing, right? They're mostly credit and equities and real estate in some shade, whether it's private, public, you know, ETFs, hedge funds, private vehicles, whatever they are, they're really the same three asset classes. And so I think what we offer is a different approach. And I think it's not appropriate for everybody, but for investors that are looking for diversification, I think it's a interesting strategy. Well, it's interesting you bring up stop losses because maybe I was taught early in my career, but that stop loss is someone equated to just creating moral hazard risk. And what I mean by that is that you know, you, you enter a position, you're like, well, I can get out of it if it goes down. And so sometimes you have the propensity to do that trade. Again, like a moral hazard, you're saying, well, you know, I can get out in time, right? And maybe it's not as well thought out or you're not as worried about the risk of it. And it creates this propensity to take more risk because you're like, oh, I can get out in time. And, you know, what if you have price gaps in the market, you know, no liquidity at the time, you know, you can't execute a mark, a limit order and you're stuck in the market. And, um, so what, what, what is your take about thinking about it in that, in that manner? Is, is that kind of the core principle of, of worrying about the stop loss? Or are you just saying that from your perspective that you've got to think about the risk up front and identify that and really structure the entire portfolio that way? Yeah. I mean, I think the fallacy that is around stop losses is assuming that liquidity will be there to execute and stop that loss. And I think that is the largest risk in the markets right now is a liquidity mismatch because of all the regulatory changes, all the lack of market makers in the market, all the lack of risk taking. And the reality is, is everybody is the same way, especially in the volatility markets where most investors are massively short Vega and Gamma, which All is, right, okay, now. let me explain okay, what yeah, that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I see Jeff <laughs> looking at me. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I'm familiar with the Greeks, even though Vega is not a Greek uh, uh, Greek letter. They, yeah. they still call it a Greek. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, that's that's let's. You yeah. had a great example with the grocery market, the produce section. I want to hear how you uh, analogize uh, how I, Vega and okay, Gamma. Okay, put it into fruit terms. I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> whatever, your, whatever your best metaphor or analogy is. Yeah. So let me maybe start at the beginning. So Delta is a first order Greek. It's the sensitivity of an option to the change in the underlying price. So. Most at the money options have a 50 delta, meaning that, you know, if the market goes up 1%, they will make or lose 0.5. Then the second order is theta. Theta is your time decay. That's what you pay or receive in decay of the option. Options are decaying assets. I like to say that options are trading vehicles. They are not buy and hold instruments. And that's why, you know, people will look to quadratic because they don't want to sit at their screen all day long and manage their Greek exposure. (laughs) Um, Because that's something you have to do if you're a long convexity buyer. Um, So when you sell options, which is not something we do at quadratic, but sellers of options, the whole reason they're selling it is to receive that theta, that time decay. So basically what it means is every single day you walk in and you get a little bit of carry in the market. Yeah, I think um, it was a fixed income term, right? Being long, just rolling down the curve, right? Rolling down the curve. Yeah. It's a carry strategy. It's just like owning high carry EM currencies where you have rate differentials or owning bonds that where you get a spread. It's the same idea in the vol space. And I think the problem that we've had is there are all these buzzwords and nice ways of saying selling vol these days. And I don't think many investors really understand like risk premia in my world, is just a super nice term for selling volatility. Now, you can step back and you say, okay, what does risk premium mean? It's extracting you know, a risk premium that's in the market. And of course, there's a natural risk premium in the vol markets because implied vol is usually higher. Implied vol means the price of volatility in the market today where you can buy and sell it. And realize vol is what actually happens. And of course, it makes logical sense that implied and realized would have a difference. And of course, implied vol should be higher than realized. But a lot of these risk premium strategies are going in and selling implied volatility. And they're very, um, I'll get to the third Greek That's gamma yeah, in no, a minute. But they're selling implied volatility, assuming that they can delta hedge, meaning capture their delta move in these environments. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of investors are assuming is that liquidity will be there. And I, you know, I think you can look back when, say, China devalued in August 2015 and what happened on Monday morning. You know, the markets, the equity markets in the U.S., most liquid market in the world, fell almost a thousand points, just boom, like that. So I think that's the one kind of problem that I have with RV strategies, especially those that use volatility and options. You're extremely sensitive to that exogenous event. Same thing with like the the Swiss when they uh, divide the franc. Yes. And turns out the Swiss National Bank kind of front run the trade too. So as it turns out, no, no one seemed to ever care about that, that they uh, cleaned up all their positions before they devalued. But you're really very exposed to these exogenous events, right? Like, um, for instance, maybe a tweet coming out on a <laughs> Sunday that says, you know, hey, we're going to do a trade war again, right? So you, you have these problems with these kind of being short, uh, short, short position, short gamma or short, uh, essentially short vega too in this type of trade, right? Yeah, I think you just don't know your risks. They're unknown. And I think all of these sort of RV trades are essentially short liquidity because they're assuming that they can, you know, RV means selling something one place, buying it someplace else and extracting, you know, the arbitrage. I grew up on the risk arbitrage group at Goldman. I never did 
risk arbitrage in stocks. I always did it in options and capital structure are back when that existed. Um, but I think RV really relies on liquidity and I don't think liquidity is there in markets right now. To, for, for people who sell options. So you promised us a, a simple explanation of Vega. Vega. Oh yeah. So I, I think I start. We're in um, Vegas, right? Theta, Delta close. we did. Yeah. Theta we did. Time decay. We didn't do gamma or Vega. So. Let's do gamma next. Okay. Cause I think gamma ties off nicely. So gamma and theta are closely related. So if you're a buyer of options, you pay theta, you pay time decay, you pay that negative carry for the benefit of owning gamma. Now, gamma gives you the sensitivity to the change in delta. So it's how quickly your delta picks up. So, for instance, you know, Quadratic had a nice article in The Economist after Brexit. You know, after Brexit, we had no view on Brexit. Zero view, right? We weren't taking a political bet whatsoever. But because we're long convexity, otherwise called gamma, those words are interchangeable. One's a bond term, one's an options term. Right? Essentially, right? Essentially, yeah. yeah. One's a math term, which the Bondos like, right? Convexity, <laughs> right? And gamma is the option way, because it's yeah. totally Greek, right? Same thing. Yeah, right. Same word. It's just different like jargon. Delta is duration. It's the same yeah. thing. Right? Same P- thing. People, people uh, think that this finance thing's hard. It's just we use a lot yeah. of jargon. Well, DBO1, you know, that's just the delta in rates. Uh, so anyway, uh, completely agree. So too much jargon. I'll try and stop me when I talk jargon. But... Long story short, owning gamma, you have to pay for it. It's not free. You have to have the benefit of that jump risk and that move uh, in the market. And so you pay just time decay. The people who sell options, which is, you know, I'd say 98% of the market right now is short gamma. They might be long vega, which is long, long dated options, but they're short, shorter dated options. And so they're very sensitive to changes in uh, the market. And they're also very sensitive to the shape of the volatility curve. So typically when you, you know, hear on the news, oh, you know, markets are selling off and the VIX inverted, you know, I, I'm not a fan of the VIX. I've been pretty candid. I don't think it's a great way for investors to own or sell volatility. Um, but a lot of, it's an easy index to look at. And when it inverts, that means that Front dated vol moves higher than long dated vol. So the, like the yield curve in bonds, right? The yield yeah, curve right. in bonds, same thing. It's all the same stuff. So, um, yeah, so that's what gamma is. Um, so investors who sell options, they want to receive that theta every single day. But the problem is, is you can, you can make money on that for a decade and you can lose it all in one day. As, <laughs> so, we, as we learned about, and I think you were pretty vocal about the, about, uh, the short vol people. Um, you know, or, or how much, uh, just kind of exposure there was to the short vol trade. And then, uh, I think a lot of investors woke up to it by using these exchange traded products, right? That had just huge annualized returns. And then all of a sudden the money evaporated in one day. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a challenge because I actually love exchange traded products. I think specifically ETFs. I think ETFs are just a better, Technology. I'm not talking about, I don't really have an opinion on passive in ETFs because I'm not that interested in, uh, in beta replication, but the whole active ETF community, I think it's just a better technology. It's a commingled fund that's listed on the exchange, has the transparency of a separate account, has intraday prices and, and transparency, but also has lower fees. So I think the problem with that is that 
ETPs, it was mostly ETNs that blew up, got kind of a bad rap because of that event, because those funds, the investment strategy, it's not the wrapper that's a problem, it's the investment strategy. Most of those strategies were short vol. I think I, after in the fall of 2017, I said the biggest short out there is actually the XIV that I thought it was going to go to zero. It didn't quite go to zero. Um, that was the short vol product. So shorting it would be a way to be long vol. Um, And it just got way too popular. And I think that's a problem with a lot of these momentum models is that they're driven based on prices. And when you sell vol, it can work really well for a long period of time. And then you can have a shock event like February 2nd, like February 5th, um, and you can lose all 100% right away. I mean, technically, you could lose more than your AUM with some of those products. So, But don't worry, you have a stop loss in place. It'll take (laughs) care of you, right? Yeah, that's (laughs) one of my problems with stop losses around options. So you mentioned the risk premium before, and we're talking about prevalence of ETFs. And so uh, there was a big rush maybe let's say in the last 10 years, to create factor-based models, right? So a lot of investors had glommed onto this. This stuff had done quite well, especially as money poured into it. Um, and, you know, there's there's challenges with some of them. Some of the composition changes significantly. So money probably doesn't drive it as much as, as perhaps maybe some of the traditional factors. What's your take on risk premia factors? And should people be using that as another way of getting exposure? Or is it just simply you're, you're getting this in your package solution already and it's more redundancy and, and really not there's not a lot of value added at the margin. Again, that's, that's a deep question, but yeah. uh, I wonder how you think about that. Maybe I can break it up. So I do think factor investing is a real thing, and I do think risk premia is also a real thing. I just personally don't like the risk reward from the investment point of view using the risk premia segment that sells convexity, that sells volatility and is sells options. I don't think it's a good risk reward. And that's because of my view on the price of owning volatility, which I think is really, really cheap. And that's because like all markets, everything is driven by supply and demand. And supply is really, really high right now because we're in such a low yield environment that investors have been forced out the risk curve to take other alternative type, you know, betas into their portfolio. So you can call this smart beta, you can call it factor investing, you can call it systematic, you can call it risk premia. At the end of the day, in my world, it's all selling options and it's all wrong way convexity, in my opinion, especially given where the level of volatility is right now. All right, that's good. So let's talk about the, uh, so we, we know that you trade options, those are the instruments. What markets do you focus on? So um, options can be structured on every single um, financial asset out there. What is kind of your core market that you traffic in and what, what is the universe that you look at? Yes, we are very narrow in the sense that we only look at options. Um, I prefer options as a way of investing because of the right way stop losses, but we trade options on everything. All assets. The underlying assets. So equities, commodities, currencies, fixed income, you name it. Everything. Okay. So within fixed income, we trade rate, volatility, and options um, with a directional bias. We trade credit. We trade FX um, in the fixed income space, commodities, equities, pretty much everything. Okay. Um, so when you so you have the world is in front of you, how, how do you put the portfolio together? How do you figure out where you want to buy? Is it just a view on on volatility, convexity? 
Do you incorporate macroeconomic thought? Are you a trend follower? What is the way that you approach trying to start to look at what you want to buy in the market? Yeah, so we definitely approach it from a volatility basis. At the end of the day, we're looking at term structure, which is a steepness or inversion of the volatility curves, just like the yield curve. We look at the cost of carry, which is how the option rolls. Um, in rates, cost of carry is very uh, interesting because you'll have a lot of variables with the forward as well as the volatility and how the option carries. We look at skew, which is the price of volatility for different strikes. And so the alpha that we bring to the table is really selecting the right way to implement a long convexity strategy. Um, and we do that across asset classes. We actually have uh, a new product um, that I'm pretty excited about that I really feel like is a step towards further democratizing financial markets, um, which is uh, going to be coming out um, that's in one of the asset classes. Can you can you elaborate on democratization of, of financial markets? Yeah, so that's obviously a, a big statement. I think the problem with volatility as an asset class is most regular investors don't have a lot of choices. The only real access vehicle that they have are listed options, and most of the flow is in the equities market, specifically the S&P and its derivatives like the VIX. Um, I don't think that is the only place to um, own optionality. There are a lot of different types of volatility, and I think offering other choices and giving access to investors in OTC markets is um, really a good thing to do for the world. How do uh, potential investors get exposure to Quadratic? You know, your strategies, your way of approaching uh, risk in markets. Is it mostly institutional? Or are there uh, retail investors? Is there a, a way there? Is the hedge fund LPGP structure? What, what yeah, I mean, that goes back to the democratizing the markets because when you have a private fund vehicle, a regular investor can't access it. They can't buy into Even if they wanted to, they couldn't access the strategy because you have to be, you know, have a certain net worth, a certain income. So you can't, even though it might be a great thing for, you know, your mom to own unless she's very, very wealthy because we have a wealth gap. She can't access that market. So I think that's why going back to my comment about ETFs, I actually love ETFs because I feel like it's a way of providing a democratic environment for investors to access financial markets. It gives anyone, you know, if you can go have a nice dinner out, you could buy a couple shares of a of an ETF. And I think it gives access to all investors. And that's one of the things going back to that comment of democratizing financial markets. I think giving investors access to products that they can't, you know, anybody can trade stocks, right? You can, you know, I can trade them on my iPhone right now. Anybody can trade listed securities. But most investors, even institutional investors, don't necessarily have access to the over-the-counter markets, which especially in something like the fixed income markets, that's where liquidity is. That's where the whole market trades is all OTC. Right. So you're going to help solve the wealth polarization problem by democratizing access to convexity products. Yes. I think you got to simplify that message a little bit. The words are pretty big, but I think, I think it's very ambitious. I think it's great. I mean, it shows what, um, you know, when we started off, you said you wanted to be an entrepreneur. I mean, it shows kind of the thought behind it. It's not just, we have the strategy, we're going to cram it down everyone's throat. You're thinking about how you can kind of help the financial markets. And I think that, that's what, uh, we, we find very interesting. So, um, 
you know, w- what is the next step? So are you talking about exchange traded products? Obviously, we don't want to push securities or anything here, but um, are you looking to get into that ETF type of world or ETP world, I should say? Yeah, we we are. I mean, I, I'm not obviously selling a product and you always have to read a prospectus, but we're actually, um, I think your your colleague Gunlack said uh, at Sohn, I believe, that his favorite trade was interest rate volatility. I completely agree with him 100%. I just don't agree with the vehicle. The vol on that product is much more expensive interest rate volatility than the OTC markets. Right. Well, the problem I think that he had, and I'm not going to uh, try to offer out ideas, but the whole idea is to do it on swaps and vol. And uh, unfortunately, people don't understand what that is. So it's like, yeah. let's give them a vehicle to think about it, right? And yeah. I think, I think yeah. that's what that's really what it was. And I completely... We start talking about 130, you know, pay, payer receiver swaps and vol. People get a little... little freaked well, out. Yeah, yeah, a little freaked no. out, right. And that's why I think the the... The channel that we're going down on giving access to investors to the beta of interest rate volatility, to the beta of interest rate convexity, to the beta of the shape of the yield curve is something really unique and really kind of innovative um, in the space and really good for uh, investors to have more choices that they didn't have otherwise. I, th- I think the way you just described it is perfect because you're using a well-known term, a beta, to this. All you're doing is thinking about a coefficient, right? Um, you're trying to say, okay, this is the payoff to this function. Maybe it's not a true beta. It's not linear, but you're trying to give them exposure to this thing. And I think that's, that's part of it. It's education. You know, so uh, that's why I want to come back to your democratization. So there's the SEC and folks believe there's a reason that investors shouldn't buy these strategies. You need to be wealthy. It's because you need to understand the risk. So part of the um, challenge, I think, is also education. So what do you do as a as a portfolio manager, CIO, to help educate folks to say, no, it's not risky. This isn't 100% of your portfolio. This is a piece to do this, or maybe it is 100%. But how do you uh, how, how do you work on education and, and thinking about getting out there and explaining to people how these strategies really work and can help them? Yeah, I think that goes back to my philosophy about buying versus selling options. And you know, when you buy an option, the most that you can lose is the premium you pay. It's like it's like a debit card. It's fully funded. Whereas if you're say you're trading a DBO one neutral delta one swap, you know, it's not a defined risk, right? You have one that's bigger notional than the other and you have to manage that and it's undefined risk because they could both move against you. Um, so I there's think this, I think there's this fund called long term capital management. I think that was near that <laughs> was trying to do that exact trade, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, and they all they all won Nobel prizes, right? Or not all of them, but there was a few Nobel laureates there, and thought to be the smartest people in the room. And yeah, the market can make you look very foolish, right, on those Relval trades, like you said. Yeah, I mean, Relval goes back to relying on liquidity. You know, you're making an assumption that you can delta hedge your portfolio when you need to to stop your losses, and I think that is a fake assumption because you're assuming that liquidity will be there. When you're long an option, you're you know you're also relying on liquidity to profit take and roll. But you can also, by being long convexity and owning the option, it's just opportunity cost for you on profit taking. Right? You're not always going to be able to time, you know, the most the best time and take all of your positions off, but you can ratchet down your profits as it works. 
So, so let's talk about that today. Let, let's make it somewhat prescient. Where, where are the opportunities in the option space today? So I think, you know, your firm really highlighted, I think it's interest rate volatility. I think that is the most mispriced convexity in the world is U.S. interest rate volatility. And I've thought that for about a year and have been working on this um, for about a year. And um, I think it couldn't be a more perfect environment um, to, you know, ever, you're never going to time it perfectly, but I think it's a really great access vehicle, um, even for institutional investors who might understand all the options mechanics, but they don't necessarily want to deal with the day-to-day Greek management and rolling the position and monetizing it. Because again, when you have a long convexity portfolio, long optionality, it's a decaying asset most of the time and you have to manage and take profits. So the investor can choose when they want to take it down or up based on volatility, based on the underlying, and they can profit take because they have an intraday liquidity vehicle. So as we sit here at Salt, and I know um, you're on the panel, I think I overheard that. Uh, unfortunately, Sherman and I got in a little bit too late yesterday. But for us and then for our listeners who weren't here at Salt, uh, what were some of the takeaways on, on that panel and your thoughts around it? So I was on a panel yesterday, and then I'm also on a panel later this morning at 11. So two panels. I think um, yesterday we were really talking about diversification in your portfolio. And I think that's one thing that I really believe in is that you want, just like most investors have a 60-40 looking portfolio split between equities and bonds. And most of the bonds are credit and isolating credit spreads. And I think you really want diversification in your portfolio. You want to own, I think, certain other types of assets that will perform well in other environments. So you're not having all your chips on on one one bet. <laughs> it's kind of amazing how people perceive diversification because you just said that the 60-40, but you look at the 60, it's in equities by definition. And then the 40, the majority of it is in credit which is somewhat correlated to equities. I mean, just think about when you have a bad downturn, it's it's actually a true uh, recession, not like a financial exogenous event or liquidity event, but it's actually credit problems, right? Uh, that bleeds to both sides. How do you think that the option strategies can help complement um, ex- uh, or help diversify out this risk um, when essentially you know, a lot of it looks very similar? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I really see, I do believe in factor investing and I do see, um, our our product that's coming out uh, next week is really going to be the factor of volatility, the factor of inflation expectations, which, by the way, are trading below realized, um, which is kind of crazy in this environment the, when the Fed is actively saying we want inflation, we want inflation. Um, and uh, also the factor risk of value, which is really whether you're um, you know, private equity investor where you're so sensitive to growth and your underweight value, having that value factor risk, I think is something important to diversify. And I think the problem with many portfolios these days is they've really been so heavy into growth and privates, and that's worked really well. I think the question is valuations now and whether those assets are expensively priced and whether they're still going to have that same uh, return profile and whether you're getting compensated for liquidity, which I, I personally don't think you are. So going into say a private credit investment right now, 
people think that might be diversifying, but to me, it's the same old stuff. I mean, it's credit spreads and credit spreads is very linked to equities and you're still just long a bunch of market beta. Well, the thing is, it doesn't get marked very often. It only gets marked quarterly. And so there's this perception of uh, volatility too, right? So- well, there's a perception of less volatility because there's not the liquidity to mark the portfolio. So right. it's, it's not, I'd say it's fake, you know, perception. Well, it's, fake vol- it's fake vol. Um, it, it should be, you know, if you had to mark it every day, you know, it would, it would zig and zag probably more than the, you know, public markets by definition, right? Yeah, I agree. Um, but, um, the thing is, is when you talk to institutional investors, especially sophisticated ones, they say, well, I know that, but guess what? I don't have to look at it. And so there's some, there's some behavioral bias. I think that that's led people there and it allows them to take more risks probably at the end of the day, because they don't have to worry about answering to a board of what happened last Tuesday in the market. Right. And why is your position marked down? Um, so I, I think they're, they're, I'm, I'm sensitive to that. You know, I understand where, you know, that, that behavioral side and sometimes, you know, uh, like we say to folks, the uh, the lockup fund is to protect you from yourself. And really, that's that's the best thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to my entrepreneurial goals and my vision of bettering the world and democratizing financial markets. Is I think that what this means for most investors' portfolios is they do have huge allocations to illiquid strategies that are much greater than they were before the last crisis. So by nature, especially because they're spending needs, whether you're an endowment or a pension fund or a 501c3 and you have to pay out cash uh, off that portfolio, I think it just translates to more volatility that will occur in the public markets. Because right. they're using and that for the liquidity part to build those funding. It's huh? a penny bank. And that's why I feel so good about giving a vehicle that's long convexity, long volatility in a easier to carry, in my opinion, way than some of the other choices out there that will give investors diversification and also give them liquidity. We're, we're talking about diversification here in uh, financial markets and portfolios, but you know, as I was walking over here to the podcast, I, I caught on someone's booth um, a statistic. And as we're talking about diversity, the statistic was something like 46, 46% of uh, the financial industry is represented by women, but only 15%, I believe, if that was a number, are executive roles. As we try to look beyond, you know, bringing more of a level playing field or just diversifying the workforce within there. I mean, can you talk a little bit about your experience there and, you know, has the market improved, do you think, or has the industry improved rather, you know, versus when you first started? Yeah, no, I think that that classification of executive roles is really artificially making that 15% number way too high because that's not, I think if you look at the number of women who actually take risk and make direct investments, something that I do at Quadratic, it's even, it's it's a fraction. I'd say it's 1% because so many women who come into the finance world will go and become lawyers or they'll be in compliance or they'll be in operations or they're in some sort of role that's not actually managing portfolios and managing money. So I think it's really terrible the number of female portfolio managers out there. And I think it's even worse for the number of female portfolio managers who are also entrepreneurs and start their own firm, um, who are not, I would say, allocators who are actually making the direct investment. Um, so it's really a small percentage. It's, it's terrible stats. 
Um, how and do I we think- make it better? How do we make it better? You know, you've got the entrepreneurial vision. How, how do we, how do we make that better? Is it, is it teaching? Is it showing people the opportunity set in college level? Is it, you know, making sure that we shepherd young analysts to, to, to try to take on those roles? Uh, how, how do we, how do we do better as an industry? I mean, I, I have opinions about a lot of things, but I don't know the answer to this. I'm not sure. I think to me, I do a lot of volunteering at universities in grad school as well as undergrad um, with a lot of different colleges. And my message to women when they're kind of picking which career path they go is it seems very obvious to me from a risk reward point of view to be a portfolio manager because you have a way to evaluate yourself. You have a number next to your name and it's to me the so obvious and the ultimate meritocracy whereas if you're you know let's use the term executive if you're a compliance officer you know you really have wrong way convexity because if everything's great <laughs> it's all downside, it's all <laughs> yeah. downside right yeah. 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 nobody's yeah. gonna be like great i'm glad you know we didn't have any problems today no one likes you <laughs> yeah so to me i don't understand it it doesn't make a lot of sense to me and that's one of the reasons i do a lot of outreach with women who are kind of choosing their career paths because it seems very obvious to say go into a role where it doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from or who you know or, you know, how political you are. If you have a number next to your name and you perform, you will be successful. So it's a head scratcher for me. I don't get it at all. I think it's wrong way convexity. Just like I don't get stop losses. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? yeah. so well, I mean, I, I mean, guess I'm out there. Yeah, in the- no, it's, it's good. I mean, uh, I think that that's the thing is just letting people know the opportunities there and, and promoting it. And, you know, that's the reason we run money is the same thing. It's scoreboard at the end of the day and you're measured every day and you try not to get focused on that day to day and make sure that, you know, it does, it fits your philosophy and it goes through over a cycle. And, uh, you know, it's always been interesting to me. So I'm with you. I don't understand why more people don't want to do it. I have to say though, as we sit here, probably minute 35 or 40, uh, if my mental clock's close, pretty good for your first podcast. You've done a great job today. So thank you so much for coming by. We don't want to take up too much of your time. But before we let you leave, the the most traumatic part of the, the show is about to come up. So I'm going to let Sam introduce that to you. Yeah, and hopefully it's not too painful. But uh, that part of the po- podcast is called uh, Sherman Says. And what I'll do is I'll give a a one or two word term and hopefully prompt a response, top of mind type of response. And I will alternate between you and Jeff Sherman, starting with Sherman first with volatility. Low. And Nancy, uh, you don't get the same word. You get a different word. <laughs> so you took the best the word. That's, you stole my thunder, <laughs> right. Jeffrey. No, it's she, not fair. She, she, he, he likes to do this to no, us too. Don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah. You're just trying to make me angry. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Anger, see, no I'm anger. kidding. I'm kidding. Really for gamma. Anger. We're talking about yeah. gamma before. And, you know, you know, David Banner. David Banner. Yeah. David yeah. Banner, turns gamma. green. Hulk. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. So no anger. No anger. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I'm worried. <laughs> I'm going to bring it back Melody's to you my word. <laughs> with uh, 2020 to Nancy. Thinking outside the box. Vegas. Raining. Russia. I don't have an opinion there. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to have an opinion. Yeah. You can just say red. Been there. <laughs> Been there. Okay, good. Duration. Rich. MMT. Bad. Expansion. Continuing. Jerome Powell. 
beaten up. <laughs> Inflation. Stuck. Guilty pleasure. Sailing. And that's it. All right. Well, thank you, Nancy. It's been a great conversation. Um, I'm, I'm glad we could have your rookie performance here um, of podcast guests. And um, I'm sure that uh, you're going to do quite well. We look forward to seeing the launch of your product, and we really appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, great. I'm glad. I'm glad. I know you're a little nervous coming in, so hopefully uh, we got through that. So uh, you're, you're a natural when it comes to convexity, so I appreciate it. Well, I, uh, I don't really love doing the public speaking thing, but I have to say I do feel very strongly that owning convexity is so good for investors, and I think it's easy to talk about it and tell the story when you have a lot of conviction and passion and you know that you're doing the right thing or at least trying to educate people to do the right thing uh, for their portfolios. That's great. So, um, again, this is the end of the Sherman Show. You can get us at DoubleLine's website at DoubleLine.com, uh, on iTunes, SoundCloud, some other things that we don't know about. You can always send us feedback, Show at DoubleLine.com. Uh, we take all your requests coming through. If you have any more guests for us, please let us know, and we'll see you next time. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, DoubleLine Capital.